Hello, and welcome to the Salem on the Go podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. The most important questions that a lawyer will ever ask in their case is the first ones. So, what are the first questions asked in Scripture? In this new series, First Questions, we'll explore that answer as we look at each of the first questions that are asked by individuals and characters all throughout the Bible. So let's turn now to God's first question, where are you? Well, welcome back to this, the second part in this series we're doing called First Questions. Now, technically speaking, today is actually the second question, but it is the very first question that God ever posed to humanity. So today's first question is God's first question, and it comes in second place here in Scripture. And the reason that we wanted to focus on first questions in Scripture, the first questions that were posed, is because, as I see it, first questions really do set the tone for everything else that comes, right? Uh, Take, for example, if you're if you are married or you think about a married couple in your life, the first question that sort of comes out of a married couple's mouth in the context of a conversation can often set the tone for where it goes. So if, a, if I'm in my house one day and my spouse comes into the house and automatically they're like, where have you been? All right, well, first of all, I'm sitting in the house, but let's just go with this question a minute, right? They come in and automatically, where have you been? Right? Now, when, though, when they ask that question, there's multiple ways that they can ask that question with various different tones, and the way that they will pose that single question with a variety of tones will determine how I will respond, and then it will determine the entire course of the conversation. For example, you know, they might come in and, and they will say it a particular way, and it will point others in the direction that they are heading. Like, it'll, it'll sort of take that argument down a particular path. It can also, in that moment, start to clarify some assumptions that that other person has, right? Where have you been, right? You know, there's some assumptions that are behind that, and, it, and the way we ask that opening question, the tone with which we use it, it clarifies those assumptions, or it, or it sort of fills in the gaps in our knowledge, and it highlights the gaps that are there, and thus the reason why we would ask the question. And so that very first question, whatever it is, the tone and the way that we choose to sort of say it can do one of two things. It can either create suspicion or it can start to build bridges. It can sort of bring us together or it can create more suspicion in the context of the relationship. And last week, whenever we were starting into this series, we looked at the very first question that was offered in Scripture, and that was definitely a question of suspicion. The serpent is the one who offers the very first question in Scripture, and the serpent is the one who comes to Eve and introduces a bit of suspicion around the goodness of God. Now, this is an interesting thing that the serpent would do because it defies logic and it defies the the woman's experience, but he still introduces this suspicion. And when the serpent offered this question of suspicion, here's what happens. All relationships begin to disintegrate. And this is important to remember because sometimes we lock the disintegration of relationships into the moment of disobedience, but in reality, the relationship began to dissolve as soon as suspicion began to creep into this space. And as ironic as it is, through one question, all suspicion was engaged in relationships and relationships began to deteriorate. It's also through one question that all relationships can be built back up that we can start to see relationships coming back together. And I, and I started to unpack this a little bit last week. And the, the way that I said this in, in real simple terms is that we can, be, we can rebuild trust in the context of our relationships when we commit to two things. When we commit to questions over assumptions or statements, and when we commit to community over isolation. 
So we commit to questions more than, than statements. So we're inquisitive about reality. And when we commit to being in community over being in isolation, and what this does is two things. One, it introduces a level of humility back into our relationships, which questions always do, because questions are the, that tool that God gives to us to sort of enable us to, to fill in the gaps. When we offer a question, we admit that we have gaps in our relationship that need to be filled in. And when we offer a question, the second thing is also true. We're inviting someone else into the process. We're not just offering the question into thin air and hoping that, you know, our own voice will answer the question. We're inviting someone else to be a part of the solution to the problem that is there. And so we invite humility in, and we once again invite humility in, or I mean community in, and that's what becomes the sort of superglue to healing the relationships. And it's why today's question is so very important. Right? This isn't the first time that God has spoken to humanity. It's not. God has spoken to humanity all in Genesis 1, Genesis 2 uh, already. But God speaking to humanity in both of those places was God speaking in terms of statements and declarative statements or exhortations or instructions, commandments, those types of things. And so God, time and time again in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, has spoken in declarative ways. Be fruitful and multiply, right? Name all the animals, go out into all the world, eat everything that's there but this one thing, right? Avoid that tree right over there. That's the one that you don't want to eat of. Everything else is good, it's good. But this is the very first time that God came to them and spoke to them after the dissolution of a relationship. After the fall, after their, their, their relationship with God was rent in two and their relationship with one another started to, to disintegrate as we see. This is the first time that God speaks. And when he comes back into the garden on this particular occasion, he asks a question. Where are you? Where are you at? Now, let me pause here for just a minute because this is a really important question. I don't, I don't want us to mess up exactly what's happening here. How many of you, and you can fill this in in the chat if you want to, but how many of you have ever asked this question when someone was upset with you? Right? Where are you at? Right? I have got to find you. I have disrupted. There, there's disruption in the relationship, and I need to find you. We've, we've all had those sort of moments where you know, we've lost someone in the store. If you're a parent, you've lost your child in the store. You've been, you've been looking at the clothing rack or whatever it is there for a moment, and all of a sudden you lose sight of your child, and you have that moment where automatically the question, when the relationship is, is broken, where are you at? Where are you at? Son, daughter, and you know, in my case, where are you at, Andrew? Are you hiding in another clothing rack? That's what I'm looking for. Because immediately, I want to locate where that person is. I want to fix whatever is wrong in this moment, right? Some of you, you, you don't have that experience with children. Maybe you've had that experience with a new puppy or a new pet in your house, right? This is something that my family were thinking about right now, and, and, and the biggest fear that comes is that moment when you have to leave the house and you think you've left the puppy dog in the new crate, but you were wrong, right? You, you messed something up, the puppy broke out of the crate or you didn't latch it or whatever it is, and you come home and unlock the door and open the door and you are greeted by a room full of dirt, debris, and other disgusting items, right? Because the dog has been all over the place in the living room. And in this moment, right, you come home into this place and you, what do you say? Milk bone? That's my dog. That's I'm. I'll name that dog, I don't care. Melbourne, where are you at? Where are you at in the house, right? And you're not wanting to like be friendly to this pup. Like every bit of rage is rising up inside of you as you try to seek this dog out. That's what you're going to do. Where are you at? I need to find you in this moment because of what you've done that's so wrong, right? You're, living, you're sitting in the living room, relaxing, enjoying your life, sitting back in the recliner like many of you might be doing right now. All of a sudden, it sounds like the opposite end of your house just fell into the, the ground, 
right? Immediately you cry out to whoever else is in the house. Where are you at? What happened, right? You want to know what's going on. Did something really break? Did you break something? Are you still alive? What's going on in all of these spaces? We need to know in that place. And it doesn't have to be just physical reality. Sometimes you can actually be sitting face-to-face with someone. You can be sitting right across from them. And you've been talking and talking and talking. And as you've talked to them, you start to recognize they're not there. Right? It, the, the, the responses that you originally got are now kind of like, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. All right. And what do we do? We pause, look the person in the eyes, and we say, where are you at? Like, where are you at in your mind? Where are you at in your thinking? You, you, you're sitting right there across from me, but you feel like you're a thousand miles away. Where are you in this moment? And I need you to come back in. Like I've been pouring out my heart for 10 minutes now. I just need to know where you are. And this, I believe, in all these different scenarios, kind of demonstrates for us that this is a go-to question in the midst of relational turmoil. Where are you at in your thinking? Where are you at emotionally in your life? Where are you at physically so I can find you and wring your neck, right? I mean, whatever it is, I wouldn't suggest doing that, but that may be your response. And I'm going to be kind to you and gracious and say, don't do that. But that's your response. That's what happens in this moment, right? This is our go-to thinking in any of these realities. And this isn't a new reality. As soon as Adam and Eve partook of the fruit, broke the relationship, they knew that God was going to come looking for them. They had done something that was wrong. It was, it was the one thing he told them not to do. And what did they do? They hid from God. Verse 7 tells us that they hide and they take the, their relationship into their own hands as soon as the relationship is damaged. Verse 7 tells us very clearly the eyes of both of them were open. They knew they were naked in that moment. They'd never known that before, which seems odd, right, if you're walking around naked, but I'm not going to get into that today. And they sewed fig leaves together and they made loincloths for themselves. They immediately took matters into their own hands because in this space, they no longer needed God. They could take care of it themselves. And that's exactly what they attempted to do in that space. And then, verse 8 tells us, they ran even further away. Right? In this moment, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They knew God would come. They knew it. They knew what God would come looking for them and wondering where they were. And what did they do? They hid. They hid from him in that moment out of fear of what he might say, out of fear of what he might do, out of fear of the retribution that would come, the punishment that would be instilled because he had already told them not to eat from it and if they ate from it, then they would die. And sure enough, what does he do in verse 9? He says exactly what they think he's going to say. It says that the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Right? Like the parent looking for the kid who's just broken the vase. The vase. Where are you? Like the puppy owner looking for the puppy somewhere in the house. Where are you at? Like the spouse who's wondering what their partner is going through and why they're not connecting with them in this moment. Where are you at? Where are you at in your thinking? Where are you at emotionally? All these types of things. Adam and Eve assume God is out for retribution, for justice in this moment. Where are you at is not a welcome question to them in this moment. It's not what they were looking for. They didn't want to answer that question. They didn't want to tell God what had happened in that moment. They needed to hide in that space as quickly as possible for whatever God was going to do in response to their disobedience. And here's the thing. As as fortunate as this is and as this interpretation is and this whole scenario is, this is how many of us view our Creator today. It's how you and I view God so often. 
I don't need to highlight the spaces in your life where you may or may not have broken God's law, fallen short of perfection, right? We all, we all know those areas. Deep down in our heart, we kind of understand them. We get it. We, we sense the conviction whenever that happens. We know we've broken God's law, rebelled against God's love, chosen not to love our neighbors or listen to the cry of the needy in the world. That's, that's our confession that we make so often. We know those things to be true. I know all those things about myself. You know all those things about yourself. But here's the thing. In that knowledge, we often assume God's response to that moment. We assume in that moment that God's coming out and going, where is he at? Where is she at? Where are they at? Where, where are they at? I need to teach them a thing or two, right? I can't believe that they've done this. I can't believe they've broken that law. I told them specifically. They grew up in Sunday school. They understood what it was. They, they know right from wrong. I can't believe that this happens. And every time we do this, here's what I'm going to argue. We interpret that question in the wrong way. The vengeful, vindictive, suspicious way of asking that question, it's not the only way to ask that question. It's not the only way that you can offer that question to another human being. And and honestly, and probably most important today, that's not the way that God asks that question to you. That's not the way that he comes to you offering that question. Will God ask you where you are? Absolutely. Time and time and time again, he'll ask you that question. He'll prod you with that question. But it's not the way you think he's asking This is one of those questions that if not asked in the right way, with exactly the right emphasis, it can produce a lot of confusion. And throughout time, it has produced a lot of confusion about the nature of God and how God acts in the world. There's a way to ask that question with suspicion that that, that is our go-to more often than not, right? But there's also a way to ask this question in hope in hope of restoration, in hope of reconciliation. And here's what I'm going to argue, and you may think I'm crazy for this. That's okay. I'm going to suggest this is the five way of asking the question. You may have no idea what I mean by that, but in a few minutes you will, and you will never forget it, I promise you. I'm talking about Fievel Goes West Fievel. I'm talking about Fievel American Tale Fievel. I'm talking about Fievel 1986 Make Your Child Cry Singing a Song Fievel. Like that young, lovable little mouse Fievel who we've all grown to love and, and who got lost coming to America. That's what I'm talking about. right? And for me, this was the very first movie that I ever saw in the theater. American Tale, 1986, summer of 1986. My mother was on bed rest because she was pregnant with my sister and the doctors were doing everything they could to keep my baby sister in her belly just a little bit longer. And my dad had to figure out something to do with us. And so we all went to the movie theater that summer, me, my brother, my, si- my older sister, and my dad. And as we went out into that, that theater, we saw Fievel. And I will never forget as I was sitting there as a five-year-old boy in that classical moment when Fievel sang to the moon somewhere out there. Some of you know this already. Some of you have felt this already. You, you get where I'm going with this. In fact, for those of you who don't, we're going to take just a pause a minute here. I want you to see the power of this clip head on as we watch American Tale, Fievel singing with his sister somewhere out there. Sit back and enjoy. Now, unless you are just void of a soul that scene will rip your heart out. I remember as a five-year-old boy just sitting in the theater bawling in that moment. And I don't know if it's the emotional rise and fall of the music or the undercurrent of abandonment that I was feeling right now because I couldn't be with my mom, but I was wrecked in that movie theater. And it has that effect. This is the interesting thing about this particular 
story for us. It has this effect where this emotional shift is brought on by a young mouse who's asking the question, where are you? Right? And that's the heartbeat of this song. Two siblings asking the question, where are you at? Where are you at in your thinking? Where are you at in this world? Where are you at so I can find you? They're completely lost from each other in this moment. No doubt about it. They're as far apart as they can be. And there's fear that surrounds them in this moment. And their relationship has fallen apart. They're not sure if they will ever see each other again. There's danger lurking all over the place, as we soon find out. There's confusion. There's doubt. There's despair in their separation. All of those things are coming out in this moment. But when they ask that question, where are you? Somewhere out there, where are you? Hope in that moment is reborn. Hope is born in their heart. Where are you? If if we know the answer to where you are, then we can find ourselves in that very same place. If we discover this answer, we can imagine a day when reconciliation will come about. If, If this answer becomes clear to us about where we are, then the division that we're experiencing right now, one day it'll be over. And we'll be able to walk together again in in unity and harmony. We'll be together in that way and our relationship will be restored. And and I don't know if you picked this up already, but this is a very different way of asking this question, right? Fievel's method of asking this question is not a question of suspicion. It's a way to ask this question that brings about hope. Question and hope that things can be different. And I want to suggest today that this is exactly how God steps into the garden that day. And maybe even further than that, most importantly, it's how God wants to step into your life every single day. God doesn't come into your life to bring judgment or damnation. He doesn't come to your life on the other side of brokenness to rip you apart. God's present in your life in hopes that reconciliation can be possible. God's there with you as you wrestle along with the wreckage of your past. He wants to stand there with you as you look at your past and you see all the pieces that are lying there. And he wants to see where you were and where you are now and where you want to be in the future. God's there with you in that moment as you make sense of where you are, where you hope you can be. And God is there to give you a path forward. And, and today I want to suggest that God gives us this path forward in two ways. God's path of restoration, one, gives clarity about our options. And two, it gives us grace for the journey. And that's precisely what he does for Adam and Eve at the end of this story. In the the remaining portion of Genesis chapter 3, God gives the serpent, Adam and Eve, all clarity about the options available. And then after giving them clarity about the options that are available, he wraps them in grace. He wraps them in the loving arms of grace. And after a very brief exchange over the next few verses, which I won't read, but you can go back and read to them, Adam and Eve you know, discuss with God about their nakedness and shame and why they hid, and he questions them about what they did, even though we know that God knew what they did already. And then he begins with that classical section, what we call the curse, with the serpent. And after beginning with the serpent, he moves on to Eve, and then he finishes with Adam. Right? And our initial reading of this passage makes us think, in a, in a very clear sense, that this is just divine punishment. It's retribution for their sin. And that goes back, you know, all the way to the way we interpret God and the way we ask that question to begin with. Where are you at? Right? I want to settle things. I want to make things right in this moment. But if we see this question differently, we start from a different vantage point of God trying to graciously interact with us, then we're going to read this moment differently too. Instead of seeing this interaction as one where God outlines the terms of punishment, 
I want to encourage us to see this moment right here as the place where God is highlighting the consequences as sort of a warning, as a, as a heads up. Hey, I just want to give you a heads up as to what your life is going to be like. And this single decision is the thing that this single decision in their life is a thing that will definitely bring challenges in their life. And in this very moment right here, the grace of God steps in and says, I want to define what you should expect. I want to tell you what you should expect going forward. And that's what he does. Let me just read you this section once again. Because he turns to the serpent, he turns to Eve, he turns to Adam. And he addresses each of these individuals or each of these entities, and he tells them what they should expect. To the serpent, he says in verse 14, "...because you have done this, cursed are you among all animals." Among all wild creatures, upon your belly you shall go about. Dust you're going to eat the rest of your life, right? All the days of your life. And then he goes on in verse 15, and he, he kind of clarifies what's going to happen between the serpent and Eve, and all of humanity for that matter. I'm going to put in enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He'll strike your, heel from time, your head from time to time, and you will strike his heel. In a very clear sense, what God is saying in this moment is, for the rest of your life, because of this, you'll crawl around on your belly, and, and humanity will be fearful of you. That's going to be your plight. That's going to be where you are in this world. Humanity will face you with fear. Right? And this is a primal fear for many of us. For many of us, we don't go anywhere near snakes. Right? If I introduced a snake to you right now, unless you're a deep woods Pentecostal, that's going to freak you out. Right? I'm not going to do that. Don't worry about it. But this is what happens. There's enmity. There's fear between us and the serpent. And then he goes on to the woman, and he tells her what to expect. He's like, here are the consequences of your reality. Just a heads up. I just want to warn you. I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. You're going to have a lot of pain in bearing kids from now on. In pain, you shall bring forth children in the world. But here's the weird part. It's going to hurt like crazy. Yet, your desire shall be for your husband. Right? He shall rule over you. You're still going to go back to that man, even though he impregnates you and fills you with the pain of childbearing. You're just going to go back for it time and time and time again. This is going to be your reality. And then he turns to the man. And he says, I just want to give you a heads up. I just want to kind of unpack things for you, right? In the past, you were able to eat of this tree. It was great. You loved life. You loved just being able to pick that. Not anymore. Cursed is the ground because of the decision that you made right here. You're not going to have access to the tree of life. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. And he goes on and he says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, you are, we know this, we saw the creation story, your dirt, your dust, and to dust you shall return. God's saying these are your options. This is what you are looking forward to. This is the reality that lies in front of you, and I want you to be aware of it. Based on where you are right now, I know where you are. I've, I've discovered where you are in the world, and now that I know where you are, I just want to outline for you the path that lies in front of you. And I'm saying this as a gracious warning to you. And you know how I know that this is a gracious warning? It's, it's not a reality that we have to live into. See, if this was a curse that God placed upon us, there's no way to escape that curse. That would be your reality every day, right? But how many of you know the name Steve Irwin, right? This wonderful man loved to pick up snakes. I still find him slightly crazy, but that's okay, right? He loved to pick up snakes. Us love snakes all the more. I know that that reality of the curse of the serpent is not ongoing. It, you know, he completely teaches us that we don't have to be afraid of snakes. Some of you own snakes. Don't you ever bring that snake to me. That's another thing. But 
We've overridden that. And we've done this in every area, right? Pain, how many have heard of an epidural? How many have experienced an epidural? There's a way in which we are constantly rising above the consequences, knowing that those are consequences of our life and the pain that we have, we try to rise above it. We try to rise above it in our work ethic, right? Not everybody works by the sweat of their brow. We do everything we can to avoid sweating on work, whatever we can to get out there and do and to overcome that. So every single day, we are trying to live beyond this, knowing that this is the consequence that lies before us, but realizing that God graciously forewarned us. He gave us a clue. And in unpacking these consequences, what we discover is God is not punishing us or judging us. This is God's mercy on us to tell us the path that lies ahead, to tell us about all the pitfalls and the hardships and the things that are there. And God needed to know where Adam and Eve were in that moment so that he could give them the mercy that was fitting for that space. He needed to know in that moment where they were so that he could outline the path ahead. Not so he could judge them, not so he could harm them. My friends, this is, this is how restoration works. And this is the foundation of restoration of every single relationship. Restoration of what went wrong begins with the discovery first of where we were, where we are, and where we want to be. And that's the path. We need to know that so that we know how to outline that and work together for the future. And God wants to know that about your life and highlight that reality in your life so that he can help you know where you were, where you are, and where you want to be. And in this single moment of human history, humanity experienced the deepest break in a relationship they would ever experience, the break of relationship with God, and on the other side of that, the break in relationship with everything else. What's beautiful about this moment, and it's not just this moment, you can have this moment right now for yourself, is that God is the one who sought out humanity after that break. God is the one who sought to rebuild the relationship by discovering exactly where humanity is, where they were, and where they will be. And guess what he did? He came to them in that spot. He came to them right where they were. And this morning, if you hear nothing else from me, I want you to hear this. The question that God offered to Adam and Eve is the question that God asks to you. It's a question that he levels before you. Where, where are you this morning? It's the Spirit of God speaking that question into your heart even now. Where are you at? Because I want to I be with you where you are. Where were you in the past? I, I want you to know that I was standing there with you. And the pain that you felt, I felt. I was standing there in the midst of your tears. And I was right beside you. You weren't alone. I was with you. Where are you right now? I want to know exactly what happened so I can tell you what to expect going forward. And I know you're not going to like all the options. I know it's not going to sound great, but it's my grace kind of preparing the way for you. Knowing that it's not always going to set well with you. It's not always going to be good. But if you know, if you know, if you know what, what is going to happen, well, then you can work into something better. You can work to go forward. And here's what I promised you. If you will just invite God into that tiny space with you, God's not going to wait till later to start the work of transformation. He's going to start that work of transformation right now. Now, it'll be a journey. It'll be a process. It'll be a recovery that goes on probably the rest of your life. But he's going to start that right now. 
He's going to begin that right now. And I know he will begin that right now because that's exactly what he did for Adam and Eve. They had a long journey ahead of them, a long journey of ups and downs and ins and outs and terrible things that happened to them and recovery on the other side of it and just a constant process of working that relationship out. But God began the work of grace right then. And the very final few verses of of that passage tell us, in fact, the, the beginning, verse 7, and the end, verse 21, They're kind of bookends that tell us about the grace of God. If you'll remember back for just a minute, verse 7, when Adam and Eve uh, first kind of committed this sin and they ate of the fruit, what did the author tell us? The author says, the eyes of both of them were open. They knew that they were naked in that moment. And then they did what? They tried to take care of it. They sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Now, you and I know, we make jokes about it today. That's a terrible attire, right? That's not going to work in the elements. That's not going to do anything, right? Put some loincloth or put some fig leaves on and go outside your house right now. See how how far you make it before the police pick you up, right? Like, it just doesn't work. And God knew that. God knew that it was insufficient to meet their needs. And so they did the best that they could do on their own, but then God stepped in and did what God always does. He gave them more. He began the work of grace and transformation in our lives. And in fact, the story ends with two acts of grace. In verse 20, it tells us the act of grace where, the, where humanity was restored back into relationship with each other. It says the man named his wife Eve because he recognized in her that she was the mother of all living things. He knew in that moment, as God reminded them of the, the curse of childbearing and all those things, that, that Eve would be the mother, the giver of life to all that came after her. And so he named her that way. He acted in grace towards her through the process that he found that restoration and he extended that grace to her. And then God steps in in verse 21 and it says, And the Lord God made for the man and the woman garments of skin and he clothed them. He made these garments of skin, he gave them to the man and he gave them to the woman and he clothed them. And this is arguably God's very first act of mercy for humanity. And what's interesting about it is it's also the very first sacrifice that we see in Scripture. Now, there are lots of mentions of sacrifice all throughout the pages of Scripture, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, but the very first sacrifice was not humanity offering a sacrifice to God to appease God and to get something from God. On the contrary, it's God sacrificing for us. It's God taking up the sacrifice for all of humanity. And in this moment, he models what real worship should be for us. It's that place where we sacrifice for the sake of the other, where we extend our hands and release what's in our hands for the sake of someone else to provide for them. And in this way, he models for us what grace is, and he models for us what true worship is. And on a weekend like this, where we do remember the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., a man who truly did give so much of his life on behalf of others, who believed that he could extend his being on behalf of others, we remember that the type of faith that we are all called to live into is this type of faith right here. Real sacrifice is not found on altars of gold and bronze. It's not found in those spaces. Real sacrifice is discovered when we, in mercy, give ourselves to other people. So as I close today, as Justin sings one final song to us about the reckless love of God, a love that actually sacrifices for you, not the other way around. I want to 
want us to listen for the Spirit of God asking us that question. Where are you? Some of you may want to go ahead and pull that map back out that I gave to you earlier to start looking it over as we sing this final song. To think about where you have been, where you are right now, and where where you really want to be. And just allow the Spirit of God to wrap you this morning and start to talk to you about where you will be and all the things that will go ahead go ahead of you and be be before you. I want you to allow the Spirit of God to do the work that only He can. I've, I've spoke and I've helped to try and interpret the Scripture as best as possible, but at this point, I want God's Spirit to speak deep into your heart. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for this morning and this time where we can look back <clears throat> at this very first story of grace in our midst. God, we know it's not just for our forefather and our foremother, Adam and Eve, but it's for us all. It's a story that reminds us that your grace continues to extend out to all of humanity in all spaces, and it's one that ultimately meets us right where we are. And so this morning, God, as you ask this question of your people, help us to be intentional, focused, and prayerful as to how we might respond of where we are in our life with you and where we want to be in the days ahead. God, we thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.